This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... LARPing a ghost. World War II maps. A Nazi viticulturist. And the forgery of Jesus' wife. Ken, do you know anything about kitties? I might. But do you know about magical kitties? I know everything. Everything about Magical Kitties Save the Day, a new RPG for gamers of all ages. But you know, young ones in particular. A perfect intro to the hobby. You mean perfect? I do not. Like the title says, you're magical kitties. Every magical kitty has a human. Every human has a problem. In Magical Kitties Save the Day, you use your magical powers to solve problems and... Save the day! You all live in a hometown that's filled with foes like witches, aliens, and hyper-intelligent raccoons. They make human problems worse, so the kitties go on adventures to stop them and help the humans. The super simple but elegant rule system puts the emphasis on storytelling and puts the dice in the players' hands, not the GM's. And it supports a setting and characters that players are familiar with and love from the start. When you open the box for Magical Kitties Save the Day, sitting right on top is a copy of Magical Kitties and the Big Adventure. A play graphic novel adventure. Within moments of opening it, kiddos can create their magical kitty and go on an amazing adventure that also teaches them how to play the game. Run Magical Kitty Save the Day for kids as young as six years old. And for everyone else who loves kitties. A great game for kids to start running on their own with plenty of tools and guidance for first-time GM. If you've been looking for a way to introduce your friends and family to role-playing games, Magical Kitty Save the Day is the perfect game to do it. Do you mean perfect? I also do not. Pick up your copy at atlas-games.com. You are cute. You are cunning. You are fierce. You are magical kitties, and it's time to save the day. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, the creak of the front door, the moonlight stabbing through the stained glass, the sound of cackling echoing through the way... Hold on. Are we in the gaming hut, or are we in the horror hut? I don't know. I'm unmoored from my location. If only Peter Frampton were here to come alive and tell us. But in his absence, we have doughty and beloved Patreon backer Chihiro Yamata, who asks, I've been given the opportunity to run a LARP scenario in an amazing Edwardian house. It has four floors, a drawing room, and a creepy basement built in. It even has a lead-lined glass window in one of the toilets that states, Pray for the soul of Hannah Hanley. So this makes me think I should run a ghost story. Yeah, it was either that or Deep Space Nine. Those are the two things that I thought. You're right on this. It should all be about Latinum, the whole thing. Nailed it. How do you create a story structure where the main NPC is incorporeal and ideally rarely seen? Also, any ideas for twists, resolutions that are not simply person had bad things happen to her, so the players have to find a way to help her find peace. Robin, what do you have for the soul of Hannah Hanley? Well, I guess I would step back and look at LARP format, where the typical thing is that everybody has a character and that character has an objective. So the way, I think, to avoid the obvious clam of trying to put the soul of the ghost to rest is to give everybody a separate goal 
that somehow relates to an interaction with the ghost. And so I think what you can do, first of all, is establish that every year on this date, the ghost is said to manifest. Mm -hmm. But of course, in the historical record, there are only a few times when the ghost has been seen, but they've always been seen on this date. And so the expectation is not that you're putting the ghost uh, to the final piece, but simply that you're going to get a chance to interact with the ghost. So what group of Edwardians most wants to interact with the ghost? Edwardian ghost hunters, parapsychologists. Exactly. Yep, yep. And so I would uh, suggest as the initial premise that you've got members of a psychical society and their friends and hangers-on and the, the help and so forth, and that everybody has something that they want to happen on that night, and those goals contradict one another. And many of those goals either relate to being able to experience a manifestation or are contradicted by other people experiencing the manifestation. So, for example, you could have, you know, the professor who wants to photograph a ghost, his former business partner uh, shows up on the scene and he wants to expose the professor as a, a, as a charlatan. And so that character exposes the professor, the professor loses his chance to uh, be recognized for photographing the ghost. So half of the group wants to interact with the ghost. The other half wants to mess with that first half. Yeah. Or you can also do it sort of old dark house style where some of them are the professor and his, you know, grad student or uh, drinking buddy or whoever, but others are just people who are mysteriously drawn to the house on this night of nights. And so you can have, you know, uh, a tramp who's stumbled in out of the rain and it turns out that the tramp's last name is Hanley. And maybe you don't even know who the ghost is. And since you've got that wonderful clue there in the house, they can figure out, Oh, the ghost is Hannah Hanley. But what is John Hanley doing here on tonight? The night the ghost manifests. And you, I think each character should have like an overt motivation. The one that they tell other people like, Oh, I've just came in to get out of the rain and a covert motivation, which is, I'm just drawn to, you know, kill in this house every, you know, uh, seven years or something. And that's what keeps me an alive uh, hobo forever, immortal. So, you know, John Hanley maybe is key to the mystery of what happened to Hannah Hanley and why we have to pray for her soul. But, you know, finding that out is going to be a lot of research and, and screwing around. I don't know to what extent you can in the scope of a LARP, bury a diary or other clues. But I think that that would be another fun thing to do so that you're discovering the story of Hannah Hanley, not necessarily helping her find peace, but you're at least learning more about the NPC, even when uh, she's not on stage, you know, causing cold spots or touching people in a ghostly but inappropriate fashion. Right. And, and a LARP is all about the interactions between the player characters the NPCs are just there to facilitate that. So if you want to plant information, you know, if you want to have someone have the diary of Hannah Hanley, give that to one of the uh, players and then give them a reason why they are reluctant to reveal that they have the diary. So right. that part of the reason to go out and interact with the other players is to piece together the the facts of the whatever story you're trying to put together. And that mm -hmm. can... I guess that could mean that when I was talking earlier about, you know, half of them are there to mess with the other half, it might be very passive messing of just having information that the first half of characters wants 
that you don't want to give up that you or that you need to get something in exchange before you get that information. So yeah, if you just don't want to give out, then you stop the story dead. What you need is a lever that other players can use on you so that you're forced to reluctantly share the information that lets the story breathe or move forward or make sense. Right. There's also, I guess, the issue of how do you make ghosts scary when they're not directly threatening to you? And part of that, I think, is just the atmosphere of the house. You know, use that to maximum effect, use sound Mm -hmm. effects. You know, having someone show up in a ghost outfit will be an anticlimax compared to the the dread of of the ghost. So, and part of that is, you know, you can have uh, ringers whose uh, goal is to, uh, you know, you uh, may not consciously want this, but as a player, your goal is to run afoul of the of the ghost and, and die of a heart attack at a certain dramatic point, you know, that you, right. your victory conditions are, have the most exciting possible heart attack at the most dramatically appropriate time. And, and you could even be like, like uh, Eleanor and your secret psychological goal is to die and haunt the house too, right? That you want to be drawn into the, you know, you want to hang out with Hannah Hanley. You don't want to solve her mystery. And maybe that's your goal, but your overt goal is a romantic one. But then beneath that, you've got, you know, a bad impulse. Another goal, you could have a character who's a spirit medium. And that's a way that you can interact with the NPC is that she possesses that character. And when she does, you know, the the GM hands the character the little thing. This is what you're saying. You're the voice of Hannah Hanley for a bit. And then it would be fun to have the GM actually. Your goal in this scene is now you have to lip sync what I'm saying in her voice. <laughs> right. Yeah. The bird in the ear is a very standard GMing technique in, in LARPs. So it, it's very established that you present them a thing to say and then they have to say it. And you can either give them the actual dialogue. Or you can say, this is what Hannah wants to say right now and make sure you use the words my soul or believe or whatever and, you know, let them riff. I think that that's another way to bring the character on the NPC on stage. You also might want to look into the ways that actual spiritualists used to fake ghost sightings. I'm not saying vomit cheesecloth out of your mouth, but I'm saying, you know, play around with some luminous paint and, you know, bring an ultraviolet flashlight or some set up a little slide projector that you can set going with minimal effort. And then suddenly a ghostly apparition on the stairs, lots of possibilities in terms of staging and NPC interaction that are probably, you know, maybe a little more work than having, as you say, a, a lady dressed as a ghost show up. But I think that they'll they'll feel much more in period if you're having Edwardian style fake ghost apparitions. And then that can leave you in the question of, is this real or is the parapsychologist actually a charlatan? And, you know, some of the levels of, you know, the, the fakery that that can be part of the fun is that the the players are deciding, oh, is this fake fake or is this really fake and that if that's the direction you want to go with it is is the you know are ghosts real question as opposed to what does hannah hanley want that can be another element i I think of the of of the of the atmosphere and the involvement and the the answer to that question might be determined by play Mm -hmm. right that if certain players achieve uh, their goals it is proven that it's all a, a hoax and if other players achieve their goals, they get the ghost photograph that they can then publish in the Journal of Psychical Research. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, so I guess the basic thing is just to make sure that every character has a reason to interact either directly with the ghost or to interact with someone uh, who wishes to interact with the ghost, Uh, make sure that everybody has a potential fun moment and a reason to interact with uh, multiple other players in order to uh, achieve their goal and to 
again, set aside the idea that the ghost is being put to rest, but just this is this is another chance to visit that ghost. And you can sort of, uh, you know, some of the coda moments can be, well, next year we're going to come and really prove that all of this so-called evidence of charlatanry is itself a veil out or whatever. So you can, you know, end on the impression that, you know, of course Hannah's going to be back next year and possibly with a, other people with a score to settle. Uh, in fact, you can create a character, you can set that up. It's like, I was here last year and there's a terrible event that happened and I'm decided to set this right. So the idea that, you know, every year a new group of people is drawn like moths to Hannah Hanley and maybe one or two of them die of heart attacks, but the rest of them uh, either have their lives elevated or, you know, screwed around. So possibly the suggestion is that Hannah Hanley herself is a GM a revenant from beyond the grave running a LARP every year. So you could get a, <laughs> a little meta element in, in that. And, uh, you know, everybody goes home and then they get their invitations from Hannah for, for next year. And since we're uh, thinking of a, a coda for our suggestion, I think you don't go on after the coda because you don't want to have a coda coda. So let's have another segment instead. Dracula is not a novel. We know this. It's the after-action report of a failed British intelligence attempt... To recruit a vampire, yeah, yeah, we've been through all this. And the Dracula dossier director's handbook has more secrets, more dangers, more mysteries... For players and directors to explore together, we did a year's worth of ads about it. But it doesn't have Varna. It doesn't have the Ring of Dracula either, or 13th Age-style icons, or Bibliomancy. Or a Hand of Glory, or Red Mercury, or hard-won advice and actual play reports. If only someone could gather up all that material that you and Gareth wrote after the fact. Someone has. You made Gar do it, didn't you? We've assembled. Gar has assembled. The cuttings from the dossier have been assembled into a 50-page PDF. Available free with a special offer from the Pelgrane store. Just buy a print copy of the Director's Handbook standalone. Or the Dracula Dossier Core Bundle, the Director's Handbook and Dracula Unredacted in print. Or the Dracula Dossier Starter Kit Bundle, the Knight's Black Agent's Core Book, the Director's Handbook, and Dracula Unredacted in print. Get 25% off any of those print bundles, plus the PDF versions and the cuttings from the Dossier PDF entirely free with the code VAMP2021. And don't worry, original Kickstarter backers, the Cuttings PDF will mystically appear in your Pelgrane store bookshelves without further expenditure. Do nothing, Kickstarter backers. All others use code VAMP2021 for plenty of savings and lots of cuttings. Our excitement as we unfurl large, beautiful pieces of paper across the table. And looking around, we're seeing compass roses, we're seeing latitudes, we're seeing longitudes. This must be in the most difficult-to-find-a-topic-for hut, the cartography hut. And a beloved Patreon banker, Jake, has helped us out to find a target by using our Tell Me More feature that comes out of the Ken and Robin Consume Media weekly text feature and wants to know, Ken, about... Uh, something that you gave a capsule review to recently, and that is A History of the Second World War in a Hundred Maps by Jeremy Black. In your capsule review, you indicate that this is as much a history of the development of maps in World War II as it is a history of World War II itself. And I thought you could start by 
expanding on that thought. Yeah, when I picked it up, um, I was drawn, first of all, by the fact that it was a book of maps, which draws me. And second, that it was by Jeremy Black, who is a prolific but very sound military historian and who occasionally comes at things from sort of a off-kilter or unusual angle. So he's interesting to read anyway. I recommend everything that I've read by him has been, at the very least, super reliable and then when he sort of goes around the corner, it, it's very interesting. So Jeremy Black's name in this book drew me, and I thought, uh, oh, they've gotten Jeremy Black to put together a bog-standard historical atlas of World War II. Let's see how Jeremy Black has made it different. And when I picked it up and looked at it, it turned out, oh, he made it different by it not being a historical atlas of World War II at all. So the the title is a lie. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, but but a white lie, I hope. But a, white, a beautiful white lie to draw uh, people into buying this book. What it actually is, as I said in my capsule review, is more of a history of the use of maps in World War II in various specific subgenres. So he divides them into geopolitics. So it's the sort of, you know, maps expressing the war aims of the various powers, including Japan. If this book does nothing else good, it provides lots of Japanese maps, uh, which you don't see very often. Strategic maps, operational maps, tactical maps, those all make sense. Those are the war maps used by the various powers. If you're familiar with any of the books of war maps, this is a less you know surprising or, or uh, fascinating chapter, although what it does provide is a very good history of the use of maps in the war, as opposed to just pictures of, oh, this is what Patton used when he you know invaded Sicily, which is good fun by itself, but it's more interesting to see how war mapping came about and how it changed both from World War One and from the interwar period in during the war, how the uh, use of ever-increasing resources industrially and mathematically drove map production on the Allied side. The, the Axis were just, as always, they started out good and by the end were like desperately trying to find their way with roadmaps from a gas station. <laughs> uh, then reportage Propaganda and retrospective are the last ones. And the reportage and propaganda, I think, are the really great sections. Uh, I think we've talked previously in the cartography ad about Richard Eads Harrison's bird's eye view maps of things. This was the era in which every American newspaper and news magazine, news magazines, by the way, were um, Twitter, but longer. <laughs> For people who are young. And with uh, less uh, aggravation between participants. Right, yes. You, you, you only could get mad at Henry Booth Luce, not at everybody else in the whole world. Uh, they all had cartographers on staff whose jobs were to draw and depict the, the, the war in a way that, uh, you know, people could follow along at home. President Roosevelt, you know, famously at the beginning of the war said on one of his fireside chats, Every American, every patriotic American needs to buy a world map and start tracking the war on it. And sure enough, sales of world maps, you know, skyrocketed. So the ways to which the maps were used in the newspapers is fascinating, as well as the not unaligned propaganda use of maps. And then uh, finally, the retrospective section, which is, you know, maps drawn basically after the war, about the war by various sides. And this is not, again... This is not just, oh, this is a historical map. These are maps like the Hungarian government drew a map of the hung Hungary's role in the war. Hungary's government at that time was communist. Hungary in the war was fascist. So you, you can tell that there are some, some, some dueling goals uh, on that map. And then it's uh, just sort of the, you know, the concept of how does the map allow people after the war to tell the story of the war to themselves. So it's 
the meta book of what the, you know, children's chewable version of this book would have been, uh, in that back chapter. So always something interesting going on in, in the book. Every, every map tells a story and unusually Jeremy Black then goes uh, into some detail and tells the story of how that map got around and, and who made it and why. So did World War II change maps in any way? In some ways, it mostly accelerated trends that previously existed. The biggest change in map making is the gigantic adaptation of aerial photography. And he talks about the, you know, blurring of the lines, even in World War II, between aerial photography and cartography. Uh, and if you, you know, think now to not just, you know, the Google Earth era, which is basically aerial photography equals cartography, but the, um, but the world of, uh, the, the various Gulf Wars and even the Cuban Missile Crisis, when it was all about satellite photos were the driving visuals of the map. You, you have a similar sense that this is, you know, where this world is born is out of, you know, aerial photography and the, uh, strategic bombing objectives, you know, they, they would take pictures of, of the city after they bombed it to figure out if they'd hit enough of it, that kind of thing. The, um, you know, the physical production was mostly just a matter of throw more money at it. And then most of these techniques were techniques that had been developed either in the interwar period or in some cases before, um, but became vastly more popular. So for example, with the existence of bomber fleets, suddenly the polar projection gets a lot more play. Uh, because you can, you know, see the great circle or the Richard Eads Harrison style, um, map from over the curve of the earth type stuff. Those, um, maps, you know, it's, it's not so much that you develop a new technique, but you take an old technique and it becomes very much more urgent, both in the minds of map consumers and the minds of map producers to present a map using that technique. So if you were to take a selection of maps and build a, role-playing game campaign around them. Are there particular ones that you would, uh, you know, if, if you want to structure, you know, here's all the scenarios, whether there's six or eight or 12 of them are going to uh, start with you showing the players a map or perhaps the climaxes, they will get a map or, you know, maybe special, very special episode. There'll be several maps. Which ones would you reach for first? Which ones uh, make you immediately think, oh, this is applicable to a game scenario. Well, I mean, some of these maps are, you know, very clearly, you know, game handouts. So one of the pages that I've just turned to uh, is maps drawn by prisoners of war at uh, Oflog 79 um, in uh, near Braunschweig uh, in uh, Germany. British uh, POWs, they drew maps of the surrounding countryside. Many of them were pilots. They remembered their uh, military maps. And you know, that's right there. That's a handout. You know, you, you say you're escaping from, you know, a German POW camp. Here's your map. Go. I think that's a terrific map. Some of them are the sort of, you know, this is the tactical area type map that you do when you're the small unit at Dieppe that instead of get massacred on the beach with the rest of the soldiers, your job is to get to this spot in the town and plant this a geomagnetic gin attractor or some, you know, occult nonsense. You can use us one of the standard, you know, there's lots of maps of, of Dieppe, the landing, things like that. You can also, I, I think most of the maps that you're talking about in a, uh, in the tactical sense, or rather in the RPG handout sense, turn out to be these sorts of tactical maps. You're not going to get as much use, I think, as a player out of like a, a German propaganda map showing these are all the naturally German parts of Europe. It's, you know, 
useful to know, but it's not something this immediately. Be, uh, this is what's on the wall when you infiltrate Gestapo headquarters. Right, exactly. And maybe you can plant a clue by deciding, oh, what's that little curlicue, that, that little spot in the middle of the map where things aren't German? And then you can make up, oh, that's where, you know, a, a very powerful Hunnic necromancer survives from Roman times. And he's, you know, kept the 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 German blood away because he he hates it. And so it's like, oh, he hates Germans, but he's a necromancer. Tough decision we've got to make. So uh, you can illustrate the, the game, I think, with those maps more than you can drive it, I guess is what I'm saying. And what does this tell us about the relationship between people and maps? between World War II and the Google Maps era, because definitely I think there was a sense of the veneration of maps uh, during World War II. People would have them up on their wall. They would have pins in them. They would follow the progress. They would know their geography. Is there a demystification of the map when it is no longer a physical object that is in a place of honor or that you look forward to getting You know, this week's paper that has the new updated map as opposed to something that is uh, on your phone and exists in continually upstated virtual space. I mean, I think that definitely, you know, and then this may just be because you and I are gray bearded Gen Xers, but I think that the physical has a different iconic status than the virtual. And I think that, you know, you and I would agree with that. I don't know if the kids today would agree with that, but the kids today right now, one assumes are pulling up maps of the Ukraine every morning and, uh, you know, finding out from what it Reuters or whoever, you know, how far have the Russians gotten and that sort of relationship to a map or, you know, we had the similar one, you know, during Iraq, you know, when we'd say what's going on uh, in Iraq, as long as the war is dynamic, I feel like your relationship with the map is more similar to what it, what might've been in world war two. Although I still feel like a virtual map is different from a physical map. Um, I think that as wars become static and as events within them become almost more stochastic, just sort of randomly scattered around the map, like during uh, the counterinsurgency in Iraq, as opposed to the invasion of Iraq, then that's more Google earthy to me, the sense that, oh, this little pin pops up wherever there's no spatial connotation to it, or it's harder to get a spatial connotation than when you can tell yourself a narrative or you can drive a, a little arrow, a, a, you know, put a little flag going from Guadalcanal, you know, further up the Solomons against the Japanese empire. That sort of progress is different than a little, you know, pin popping up and saying, oh, Russian bomb blew up in some city in Western Ukraine. We don't know what that means. Uh, it's easier to follow a narrative uh, map than it is a, a sort of a epidemical map, if you will. I, I think it's partly why we didn't have a lot of maps of the, uh, of the COVID uh, outbreak is because again, it seems so completely random. Eventually we figured out seasonality, but at the time it was just like, I have no response to it's bad in Ecuador, but not bad in Brazil. What does that mean? Right. And because a, a virus doesn't follow a narrative the way that an invading uh, army, army does, does or yeah. that it, a, a defending army does repelling it. Mm -hmm. um, and it's sort of more of a, you know, an, an occupation uh, around the world than something. And, and, you know, when you're looking for information on an epidemic, your doom scrolling is focused more on, you know, preprint papers and mm -hmm. uh, that sort of thing, rather than the uh, geography of it, because it's something that kind of transcends and, and confounds 
biography. Yeah. But but definitely the Ukrainian war, I think, has, um, I don't know uh, to what extent people were doing this before, but if you were doing it before, it has reinstilled your, you know, instinct to pull up a map first thing in the morning when you get up to see what's changed overnight. Well, on uh, on that note of uh, the more things change, the more they unfortunately uh, continue to have war in them. <laughs> I'm afraid we're going to have to uh, move to a, a, another hut and another subject that you you might think would be joyful, but oh, it might connect up to the oh, subject dear. matter of this hut. The Best of Ask Fageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English... That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Askfageln on DriveThru. Pray for the survival of this podcast alongside such beloved Patreon backers as Josh King, Keelan O'Hay, Sean Stevenson, Alexander Shandy, and JP Morale. The merrily burning stove burners, the clouds of steam under the dish covers, the smell of bratwurst boiling or schnitzel frying, the sound of beer steins clinking together, welcome us into a Germanic edition of The Food Hut. And sadly, it's the bad Germanic edition, because today we're going to be talking about an allied part of the hut and an allied part of Nazi Germany. We're talking about Austrian Nazi viticulturist Fritz Zweigelt. So, uh, Robin, let's uh, raise a glass of red, not to Nazis, but to Austria and viticulture. And let's investigate Fritz Zweigelt's, what do you want to say? Tangled career? <laughs> Thorny career? it was pretty straightforward, really. Oh, fair enough. <laughs> Just to, in the wrong direction. So, yeah. the, the, and the reason uh, Fritz Zweigelt is uh, relevant today is there's a grape varietal named after him. He originally developed it, and then another even more famous viticulturalist uh, uh, simplified the name to glorify him even more and had a big banquet for him. And it's particularly hip now because uh, the, the Zweigelt varietal is a core type of uh, wine uh, that is used in uh, natural winemaking or uh, organic uh, winemaking. So, and he was instrumental in developing it and in uh, that movement. And it might turn out that there are some weird aspects to this that uh, by squinting and stretching a bit, we might be able to get to a Trail of Cthulhu scenario seed by the end of this. So Zweigelt, uh, as you say, is, is Austrian. And this is also a story about how 
Austria has been a little less diligent than its German neighbors <laughs> in uh... pointing out exactly uh, who did what during the war. And so uh, you've uh, poked a bit into his uh, his bio, so uh, let's uh, let's delve in there. All right. He was born in 1888 in Graz, or near Graz. Uh, Graz is in Styria, so it's a border province in Austria. He considers himself sort of not in tune with mainstream Austrian culture. For example, he grows up very anti-clerical. Austria at that time was a very Catholic state, so he's... He, he's already a, a, a penny that doesn't uh, fit. Uh, he enters the what was then the Imperial School of Viticulture and Horticulture in Klosterneuburg, which was the only Austrian government wine establishment. He takes his doctorate in entomology, which is valuable uh, when you're studying things that feed on your vineyards, I assume. Right. And we'll put a pin in that for the scenario seat as well. Right. And then he becomes the head of that institute, although by now, uh, 1921, it has changed its name to the Hörer Bundeslehranstalt und Bundesversuchsstation für Wein, Obst und Gartenbau. Uh, and then they've also established a federal wine breeding station at Gloucester Neuburg, which he also becomes director of. So he is sort of, um, if you imagine that he is running a medical school and running the research hospital in the medical school, that's sort of what he's doing. And no sooner does he become director of the federal wine breeding station than he begins to, you know, breed wine. He starts crossing various strands of wine to begin with. He creates the and, black uh, one. He's, he's thinking locally. They're, they're right. local uh, vines that he's making more robust. Yeah. His, his goal is to have uh, wines that can grow in Austria's colder climate, by and large, and that can withstand pests. And that is the big, you know... That's the big desire that everyone in Europe has had since the phylloxera outbreak is make your wines pest proof. We don't want to go back to the Americans and beg again. That right. was super embarrassing. Yeah. And this is throwing a, a biological solution at that problem by breeding grapes that are more pest resistant. Right. And so in 1922, he creates uh, what he calls the Blauer. It's a, it's a blue grape. It's known as the Blauer Zweigelt. And then the Blau Burger, which is another red wine uh, line in 1923. Those are both very successful. He starts a magazine called Das Weinland, which is, as you might expect, a wine magazine. And he is a firm proponent, as you say, of organic winemaking and of growing wines that are natural to the soil in the area that they are. He does not want you to bring a bunch of American hybrids over and uh, crowd out the local produce. He feels like that's that's bad for so many reasons, ecological among them. Yes, the the, uh, the idea of a uh, biological purity may have <laughs> something to do with the rest of his uh, beliefs. Yes, and uh, indeed, uh, we have perhaps dropped the penny early, but he did, in fact, join the Austrian Nazi Party in 1933 after the Nazi takeover in Germany. It was still very illegal to be a Nazi in Austria. Right. So if you're wondering, oh, did he just have to go along in order to keep his wine empire going? No. No. <laughs> he, no. <laughs> he was he was uh, taking a risk in mm -hmm. order to affiliate with Nazism. Yes. And he began to, you know, work very closely with German winemakers who were, of course, being swapped out for good party winemakers. And he wound up in sort of a weird rivalry because he's still saying... No, Kloster Neuburg can be as good a wine place as Germany's wine places. And the Nazis are Nazis, but they're still Germans. And they're like, well, I don't know about that. So he's still seen 
as this sort of outsider, even after 1938, the Anschluss, he is, because he's been a loyal Nazi since day one, he is put in charge of the program, but he's named assistant director and he uh, purges the school and the wine program of uh, Christian socialists and other non-Nazis and, uh, you know, turns it all into, you know, a Nazi wine school, but he does, you know, still back and forth. Uh, one of his big foes in the Nazi uh, uh, power structure is Richard DeRay, the secretary of agriculture under Hitler, who has different mystical notions of, of blood and soil than he does. So he differs as a winemaker and as a Nazi with his uh, German bosses. He does, in fact, immediately transform Das Weinland into a straight up Nazi wine magazine. You know, as the old joke goes in 1933, you have a wine magazine. In 1938, you have a Nazi wine magazine. He uh, gives speeches on the anniversary of Austrian liberation, as he refers to the Anschluss. He is a bad hat, I feel yes. we can say. He has the chance to uh, help out an employee who's in trouble with the Gestapo and says, nope, let the Gestapo have him. And in 41, the Gestapo dissolves a monastery adjacent to his vineyard. That may be one of the reasons he was anti-clerical is they were sitting on land he wanted. And mm-hmm. indeed, they turned it over to him for cultivation. So he directly benefited from Nazi land expropriation. Mm-hmm. And uh, the uh, Das Weinland stops publication in 1943. I think that's more as a result of paper shortages than it is anything else. But After a certain point, even the Nazis uh, had other things to read than Nazi wine magazines. Right, yeah. But it probably you know didn't help his attitude at all. And in 1945, as the Americans and British come rolling up the, the valley, everyone at the school narks him out to the allies, and he is immediately arrested and detained. Suggests he's a crummy boss as well as an ardent Nazi. Yes, that he has lots of problems, both personal and political. He is uh, indicted uh, for treason, and then he's released from his internment and sort of just hangs around. He's... Indictment is dismissed in 1948 as oratorical derailment is what they say. <laughs> uh, that that phrase is an oratorical derailment. And his uh, and the president of Austria uh, gives him a pardon. He says, you know, time served. We who wasn't a Nazi? And yes. then lots of people raise their hands, and he says, but who wasn't a Nazi that we you know like? And Th- there's a lot of forgiveness going around in Austria. Yeah, everyone's you know it's all soccer torta and um, uh, and and brandy. So he is too old now to run a wine school. It is felt, and perhaps the people uh, running the wine school are thinking. Mm. We've been running the wine school just fine with nary a hint of Nazism. Maybe we don't want this guy back. So he, uh, you know, goes into retirement, lives near Graz, I think maybe in Graz. And then, as you say, the famous winemaker Lenz Moser, you know, th- what, what's happened is after 1945, all of the cuttings and uh, huge stocks of Austrian vineyards either were destroyed in the war or were looted. And so there was very little left of all of the various breeds of wine. So their job at the wine school is to recreate some of the vine blends from the notes and from some of the remaining grafts that they still had. One of the ones that they recreated was Zweigelt's Blauer Zweigelt. And it survives a gigantic, uh, I forget if it's a frost or a infestation of bugs, but in 1956, Virtually every other vine in Austria and maybe in Germany too gets uh, the croup, uh, except 
good old Blauer's Weigelt. And so as a result of it surviving that, it becomes the most cultivated red wine in Austria. Uh, the Austrians also have a green wine, which is, it takes some getting used to, but I like it. Yeah, so Weigelt is number two behind that one. Right. And, and so Lenz Moser, godfather of wining in, I forget if it's in all of Austria or in all of Central Europe, renames the recreated Blauer's Weigelt just old Zweigelt. And he says it's important that he be recognized because he's the man who created this heritage of wine that basically saved Austrians from drinking green wine with everything uh, for the rest of time. Uh, Zweigelt dies in 1964, not necessarily covered with honors, but with a fine vintage named after him, which is not nothing. And that was the happy ending until eventually someone said, this is a good wine and all, but isn't this guy like a super Nazi? <laughs> yes. And so as, as Weigelt gets more international attention because of its uh, place in organic winemaking, people look back into history a bit. And so there's a performance art group in Austria, which is exactly who you want to be looking into your wine history, who <laughs> look at his, oh, he was a, he, he was running this when? What's the deal with him? And they, you know, found the documentation. So of course the, Austrian Wine Marketing Board, who you trust to look into stuff like this, uh, investigated, and they found minimal Nazi activity, weirdly enough. Yeah. Now, the same grapes are also uh, grown elsewhere. In Hungary, they are known as Rotburger, which makes perfect sense in German. It just means uh, red townsfolk, literally. For an English speaker, it maybe makes you think of a hamburger you shouldn't eat. So it's yeah, maybe not the ideal name. Maybe for not your the wine. ideal marketing choice here, but you know, you you work with the language you got. And so there is a movement now within Austria to rename Zweigelt as the as Rotburger. And I believe the Austrian art group wanted to rename it Blue Monday. Well, there's there's where the art group came in. Yeah, that is a good name. Though. That is a good name. I'd like a glass of Blue Monday, please. You could that would that would do well here. The only danger is if you order it in an 80s bar, you get a seven and a half minute new order song instead. But <laughs> yes, exactly. But that also is good with fish and chicken, I feel so I, I, I feel as well. So we've got a Nazi entomologist who's uh, crossbreeding uh, grapes for for, uh, purity. Uh, he's doing it in the 1930s. And uh, in a uh, 2021 Gen Magazine article by uh, the food writer uh, Leah Rosenzweig, she makes a bit of a leap for a food article, but not a leap at all for the sort of stuff we get up to <laughs> in pointing out that the Reich League for Biodynamic Agriculture uh, had uh, occultic overtones to their whole program of biological purity, including that for uh, winemaking. And she sort of elides over the fact that, in fact, these were Zweigelt's rivals, mm. not something that he himself was implicated with. But, Ken, how do we use that in order to uh, have uh, something waiting for our Trail of Cthulhu characters uh, when they show up at a vineyard in Austria uh, between 33 and uh, 39. Um, I feel like the possibilities are literally endless. Once you start doing occult wine, we could do a whole other segment if uh, Patreon Backer wanted us to on occult wine. I would immediately recommend, obviously, that you look at Tim Powers's novel Earthquake Weather, which is all about reinterpreting the sad and tired Priore de Sion conspiracy as actually about wine, which is just brilliant. And then go forward from there. But the notion of something that comes up out of the soil, something that you drink 
uh, ritually, uh, something that has literal, magical, and religious significance to huge percentages of the world. That's already pregnant with meaning, and it does not take too much to suggest that either the Reich League for Biodynamic Agriculture or its Weigelt, or both of them, are somehow on the fringes of a little Shubnigurath worship, and that uh, her Soma is in some certain vintages and some certain grapes that are perhaps, you know, blauer milk or something that are, that are growing up on the highest slopes of the mountain or in the deepest parts of the woods. Uh, you could do a, a sort of a, I don't want to say boring, but I will say standard thing where Zweigelt is actually uh, growing grapes based on Shubnigurath and the Nazi in Germany are growing grapes based on, you know, Saiga or one of the other Chthonic Cthulhu monsters. I think well, that, that you I, could I think do that. He may have, uh, since he's an entomologist, mm-hmm. I think we're letting the insects from Shagai off the hook here. Ah. They are probably uh, protecting his vines and are the, the biodynamic force that creates their uh, robustness. And uh, he's, he's made a deal with them to, right. uh, you know, eat up all the ordinary threats. And, and that to, that's why his uh, wines survived that uh, terrible freeze uh, and or uh, infestation in 1956 is that they're under the protection of the Shan, the insects from Shagai. Right. I feel like uh, that's a strong possibility and that the wines that the Shan protect and I, I assume the way you signify it is you literally write something into the, the heritage of the wine. It's probably not something as crude as a rune that you graft into the stalk, but something where the actual structure of the, of, of the vine or the, even the DNA, although they don't have DNA then, but I guess the insects can show you what DNA looks like, creates a sigil and a hyper geometric sigil that allows this wine to take root in other parts of the universe. Uh, you could start even with the dreamlands because we know that there's a moon wine that is made by the servants of Nirothotep on the moon and they, uh, drop it into the dreamlands and get people messed up on it. And so and maybe it's also fully organic. It is fully organic because it comes from the moon and there's nothing more organic than a moon. So I think you could maybe say that the Nazis are using Nirothotepic moon wine, and our boy Zweigelt is up to Shan tricks. And so his wines are, you know, only partially in this universe. And so they have a sort of a, an ultraviolet or ultra terrestrial connotation to them. And again, you know, normally you, you drink Zweigelt and you just have a good time. But if you do it under certain wavelengths of light, well, then that's when the fun really begins. And that's the. Uh, the way that the, the in- insects are propagating, not their spores, but their conceptual ability to respore. Uh, they're, they're worried that their little fortress in England is going to get, you know, knocked over by Pisces. And so they, they need a second, uh, a, a second place to hide. And Austria seems great. So, uh, that, that brings up the question, uh, what are the Shan doing? in the vineyards of Austria in the 60s for fall of Delta Green. I feel like definitely if you've got Lenz Moser renaming the Zweigelt, you've got a big bloom, as it were, of Zweigelt culturing in Austria. I feel like whatever's going on in Austria in the 60s, the Shan are behind. This is their moment. They've burst out. We know that Pisces goes after the Shan pyramid at some point in the 60s. So this is their you know, grafting, if you will, they're, they're degrafting themselves from the Severn Valley and putting themselves down in, uh, Styria in the Austrian wine country. And, 
Can you connect it to Carmilla? Famous Styrian vampire, also, you know, blood, wine, the connection. I feel like you could, perhaps. But I feel like also the, you know, the notion of sort of going around in beautiful, rustic Austria and drinking wine at wine festivals. And then as you do that, you recognize, oh, some of these people are are still there. Are they debauched wine tourists or are they cultists? Are they drinking them in a ritual pattern? Is there something that happens at the top of this mountain on Valpurgisnacht that we need to know about? Because it's odd that they're having the, you know, wine on the mountain midnight picnic then or whatever. You know, it's a fairly straightforward sort of a cult story, but I think the setting makes it very interesting. And the Shan uh, are not the standard uh, foes that you expect up on the top of a mountain. You'd be thinking it's Migo the whole time. And, oh, what a what a joyous surprise you'd be in for. Right. And you know that any scenario set in a vineyard, one of the players is going to cooperate with you and uh, have their character get drunk, which is yes. always a great gift uh, and you should respect. Right. And uh, and when they get drunk, they can see things or, or have uh, intuitions or be opening themselves to some other kind of bad trouble. It's, it's all part of the investigation. Yeah. You could actually leave the notion of a Shubnagorethic witch cult that resents this new wine. Uh, you could, uh, you know, present Migo that are mad that their Alps are being taken by the Shan, or you could just leave it as a straightforward, this is a new growth of the Shan cult. And if it's not stopped, it's just basically going to grow until it takes over every mountain valley in Austria where wine grows. Well, enough of Teutonic antagonists. Let's have a commercial and then get to another segment, which surely doesn't have a Teutonic antagonist. It can't possibly. Delta Green Black Sites collects terrifying Delta Green operations previously published only in PDF or in standalone paperback modules. They lock bystanders and agents alike in unlit rooms with the cosmic terrors of the unnatural. By masters of top-secret mythos horror, Dennis Detweller, Adam Scott Glancy, Shane Iv, and Caleb Stokes. In PX Poker Night, discontented Air Force members listen to the night sky and hear secrets not meant for human ears. In Kali Gotti, a Delta Green operative goes missing from a combat base in the Afghanistan war. The Last Equation, a gifted university student guns down a family of total strangers, leaving behind a string of numbers that fills Delta Green's researchers with dread. Lover in the Ice, a bitter Midwestern winter shuts down a city and awakens a threat that is all too ready to spread. Sweetness, vandalism of a family home, twigs Delta Green to mythos danger. Hourglass, a woman vanishes screaming in front of dozens of witnesses in a small Oregon town. Ex Oblivione, crazed words scrawled at a crime scene, hint at Yohannath Lai and the sea. The child, a traumatized child, looks to the agents for protection from voices that never cease. Delta Green Black Sights is a full-color 208-page hardback. Grab it now before it grabs you. It's time once more to wend our way up the crickety cobweb stairs. Uh, we'll stop on the landing to wave at the mystic fire salamander who's uh, up on the painting in the wall. He smiles at us as usual with his usual benevolent attitude. And then we head on in to the Edwardian parlor where waits for us the consulting occultist. And this time around, Kevin Greenlee, beloved Patreon backer Kevin Greenlee, asks the following. Ken mentioned 
the gospel of Jesus' wife fraud. But there's more to that story, and boy is there ever. Uh, it involves automatic writing, sex magic, and the consulting occultist needs to delve into this. And Kevin points us to an, an epic Atlantic magazine article from 2016 by a writer named Ariel Sabar, which is itself, I think, a brilliant piece of investigative journalism where you see all of the steps taken to unravel this extremely detailed, complicated forgery story, and I think shows you how a gumshoe investigation can follow from core clue to core clue. But enough about that structural note. Can tell us about this tiny little bit of papyrus about the size of three fortune cookies that an enterprising scholar decided to call the gospel of uh, Jesus's wife. And uh, things went from there or started way longer than that. Yeah. So the gospel of Jesus wife is, uh, as you say, a papyrus fragment. It's written in Coptic. In 2012, the Harvard Divinity School professor, Karen King, who is a long, long-time devotee of the notion of a more extensive female role in the early church than, uh, say, the Catholic Church uh, teaches, went to Rome and presented this papyrus fragment, which includes the phrase, Jesus said to them, my wife. And that uh, put the cat amongst the kittens. Various laboratories tested the papyrus and said, yep, this is old papyrus, and the ink looks right. But other people said, this text comes from a copy of the Gospel of Thomas that was online in 2002, and we can tell because this putatively ancient scribe made the same typographic errors as the online Gospel of Thomas made. Interesting choice, ancient scribe. So it was already in a uh, sort of a boil of controversy when the author Ariel Sabar of our Atlantic article began to dig in. And uh, Sabar obviously couldn't get access to the fragment, was not a uh, microbiologist or a radiologist or anyone capable of testing the fragment, says, I can't do any of this. What I'm going to do is look at the provenance, look at who supposedly owned the fragment. And it turns out that the fragment was supposedly the property of a man named Hans Ulrich Laukamp. And as Sabar looks into Laukamp, he says, this guy's a machinist with an eighth grade education. No one who knew him, he's dead by the time he starts looking into it. Conveniently dead. Conveniently dead. No one who knew him ever heard him say anything about anything like this. If he collected anything, it wasn't papyri, it was beer mugs. Yeah, he was on the front page of Unlikely Papyrus Owners uh, Weekly. It was, and that was after it was a Nazi Papyrus Owners Weekly, a whole different magazine now. So, Laukamp, as you say, conveniently dead. The archaeologist, Peter Monroe, who supposedly validated Laukamp's ownership of it, also dead. All these validations, by the way, are photocopies of photocopies. They are not original documents in any way. And this is where I believe that Karen King moves a little bit away from credulous dupe to co-conspirator because she was not letting anyone look at the provenance documents. She said, well, there are photocopies of photocopies. I can't see what this actually helps. Yes, they're not of interest to me. They're not of basically interest. her position, but as Sabar <laughs> points out, the tough thing to forge in forgery is not the original item, actually some shockingly poorly forged items have <laughs> right, yeah. passed muster, but it's the provenance, the documentation that explains where this thing comes from that trips everybody up, including in this case. Yeah, I, I forgot 
who it was, but there was a famous American forger who only forged provenances. And then he would like, would toss off terrible examples of Matisse or whoever, but the provenance was so good. They'd say, well, this must've been Matisse on an off day. And he, he didn't have to do the art, right? He just nailed the, the provenance. So it's a, uh, that's a whole different uh, side of the world. And I definitely like you recommend that Atlantic article as a example of an investigation to uncover this sort of thing, because the investigation does in fact uncover a fellow named Walter Fritz, who is sort of at the center of all of this. He turns out to be on the board of a company that Laukamp founded. And also he was an Egyptology student at the free university in Berlin with this guy, Monroe, who is, as I mentioned, conveniently dead. And so might've been able to get a hold of Monroe's letterhead, which changed from the time that the letter was allegedly written to the version in the photocopy. So lots of chin stroking. He's on the cover of likely Papyrus Forger magazine. He is very, he is frank, frankly, he is the person who's been most on the cover. I think five time cover character. Anyway, to move this into what we can determine thanks to Ariel Sabar's investigation, Walter Fritz is the likely forger of the gospel of Jesus wife fragment. He knows Coptic, doesn't know it very well because he was kind of a mediocre student, but he did study Egyptology at the Free University of Berlin, published a paper on one of the Amarna texts in 1991. And even when he was an Egyptology student, he was known by his fellows as a chancer, as a right. someone who was a qualified suck-up, but a little lazy when it came to doing the actual work. Yes. And when they got an actual professor who made you do the actual work, that's why he left without his Egyptology degree. Um, faked his way into being the director of the Stasi Museum in Berlin. <laughs> Which is enough of a story unto itself. And here's right. just a footnote. Yeah, just a, just a side swipe. And it turns out that in 1992, uh, the board of directors of the museum summoned him and said, we can't help but notice that you're terrible at directing a museum and also lots of the exhibits have gone missing and turned up on the black market. Can you maybe explain that? And Walter Fritz said, I won't be talked to in this fashion and quit. He got at some point a technical degree in architecture, which gives him the draftsman knowledge necessary to forge a, a Coptic papyrus manuscript and claims to have met Laukamp at a Von Daniken lecture. And that is his uh, story. The other story that other people who knew Laukamp say is he probably met Fritz in a steam bath. But I guess you could go to a Von Daniken lecture and get all head up by the ancient aliens and have to go take a steam bath. I don't see that that's one way or the other. So at any rate, he takes his ill-gotten gains from Laukamp's ball bearing company to Florida where he buys a house near Sarasota and where his wife, Anitra Williams Fritz, no doubt under a pseudonym, starred in a fairly extreme pornography site that he ran uh, between 2003 and 2015. So that was his, his gig for the, the 2000s was running a hot wife site featuring his wife and charging people to have sex with her on camera and then charging people to watch the resulting camera. It's, you know, vertical integration. So I guess there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, in 2010, which is to say right around the time that he starts needing money, he's because the real estate market in Florida, of course, collapses with everything else. He's underwater. He is, uh, writing lots of letters to the local paper about how dare they, you know, increase property taxes, etc. He's clearly in, in need of cash. So this was an esoteric forgery essentially caused by the housing crisis. Exactly. 2008. And this is when he begins to shop his forgeries around. He tries it on a uh, guy in England, theoretically. The guy in England says, yeah, I'd, I'd pay $50,000 for that. 
again, that may not have happened, but his story is that he sent the manuscript to Dr. King to authenticate. And he very cleverly never said, I'm going to sell you this manuscript. And he, in fact, never said to her, this manuscript is authentic. So he can't be nailed. Is this manuscript authentic? I'm just asking questions. He can't be nailed for a criminal forgery because making your own Coptic manuscript in the privacy of your own home is one of the many freedoms we as Americans have. Right. And letting your prospective marks jump to their own conclusions without promising anything about authenticity is also a classic forger technique. And since no money apparently changed hands, everyone's clean. Except, of course, this guy who is dirty as hell. But uh, he's not criminally liable, which I guess is is the point. Um, in 2015, as the, uh, the the porn site having, I guess, run its course, he says it got in the way of the of our sex life, which I I believe that would happen. Um, and so he sets up an erotic antiquities store called Nefer Art in 2015, and his wife publishes a book of spiritual truths called Spiritual Evolution Universal Truths Volume 1, Messages from the Collective Core, which she has channeled via automatic writing from the Archangel Michael and from several other angels. So, for those scoring at home, she is a clairvoyant, angelic contactee hotwife. So that's, uh, that's what happened. Or, or as we say, uh, to shorten, a Floridian. A Floridian. Yes, a Florida lady. And so she, um, uh, is not otherwise, as far as I can tell, connected to the fraud, except, you know, just doing what she can to right. keep, uh, food on the table. But, but it's the antiquities theme of his art site that sort of is the tip off that led to connecting all of these other dots. Right. Yeah. The, 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 you know, and a lot of it is about, you know, uh, probably bad translations from Catullus and Song of Songs and things like like that with repurposed naked ancient art. And so that, you know, conflation of antiquities and sex, while a perfectly great reason to study the classics kids is what in fact tipped Ariel Sabar off that maybe this guy, Walter Fritz is up to something, something. And the notion of the divine feminine present in early Christianity linked with spiritual evolution, universal truths, angelic contactees. I think that's kind of fun. Uh, Sabar sort of draws a couple of lines between them tentatively in the Atlantic article, but I feel like uh, you and I can say, well, obviously she's an embodiment of Sophia, the Gnostic goddess of wisdom. And it's hardly anyone else's fault that, you know, she gives off these emanations that make people forge Coptic manuscripts or draw them in from other realities where they're not forgeries and, uh, you know, make things happen. Right. So I I think to make this into a scenario, all you've got to do is fictionalize the people Mm -hmm. and uh, add a murder or what other, you know, uh, horrible entity has been drawn to uh, attack this uh, angelic challenger uh, is probably a question. And of course, it's, you know, very much up the esoterist's alley to be uh, trying to mess with a historical record and uh, add in uh, untruths and sort of destabilize history. So that's uh, mm-hmm. an obvious thing that they could uh, be up to. Uh, you could also uh, do it as a mythos story. You just have it be a forged fragment of the original uh, Al-Azif, the Necronomicon, and run the whole story exactly, except instead of an academic conference, it was a you know scholar at Miskatonic that gets the 
Pyrus and uh, they fall for it. And then you're like, who's forging Abdul Al-Hazred? What are they up to? And you discover that, uh, oh, their their wife is actually a conduit for weird uh, Yogg-Sothothic sex energy. And that that's what's going on. It's not so much a forgery. It's just like a, a, a new chapter, a sequel, really. Right. It's a new channeled part of the gospel, right? And so that could set you up with a whole Yogg-Sothoth sex cult of people that went on the porn site at various times and uh, had uh, uh, powerful revelations in, a, in addition to whatever uh, physical resu- response they had. And that could also have been an esoteric plot that all the, the hot wife porn was also part of a tearing down orthodoxy message and that in some cases it sparked a weird and aberrant outer dark behavior. Well, I think now that we've got uh, scenario hooks out of this for a, a bunch of different uh, games and also, again, point out uh, what a great example of detective work the original article is. So take a look at that. And, there, and, and Samar wrote a whole book on it in uh, 2020. So if you if you want to read more even than that article, get his book. Well, on that note, I think it's time for us to uh, exit the podcast uh, for another week. But we'll be back a mere seven days from now. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Ask for Gown. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music as always is by James Simple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Support our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Keep this podcast in the well-guarded security of the Allied Map Room by joining such backers as... Jesse Lowe. Ben Brigoff. Gray St. Quentin. Jay Moore. And Jeff F. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Enjoy such classics as Excuse Me While I Nap This Out. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when once again, we will talk about stuff. Stuff.